You're listening to the free preview episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. To hear the entire episode, go to patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer, K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R, and sign up. It's only $5 for the entire series. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Season 2, Episode 2, Cult Therapy. When the average person thinks about helping somebody get out of a cult, the thing that they think about is usually deprogramming, or what, how it's more commonly referred to today, exit counseling. And while exit counseling performs a very important role in helping survivors leave groups, survivors and their families can benefit from therapy delivered by professionals who are familiar with cults. My guest today is Rachel Bernstein. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist who has a specialty in cult therapy. She's also the host of the Indoctrination Podcast which is all about empowering and helping people leave and stay out of cults. Rachel, thank you so much for being here today. So Rachel, can you explain a bit about what you do at your practice? Because a lot of people only understand cult counseling through the lens of deprogramming. It is true that the public perception is that it is kind of old school, that our job is to you know, show up with a windowless van and, um, as my kids call it, kidnap van, and just take this person out of a situation and, you know, hold them against their will. And, you know, none of that, none of that happens. In in my work and in my world, uh, it is actually much more nuanced than that and much more broad. So most of the work that I do is uh, in guiding the loved ones uh, or the friends, whoever the concerned party is about this person in their life who is suddenly going through changes uh, where they're concerned or they find that they have an affiliation with a group that they know is not an okay group or a person who they know is not an okay person. And they don't know what to do because the typical ways of interacting with people in those moments when you're concerned about what they're doing uh, don't work here. So it's it's to guide them so that they don't fall into kind of certain traps that are set by the controllers and that the, the loved ones, friends, sometimes husbands, wives, parents of, sometimes the children of people, they don't want to push their loved one farther in, in their attempts to try to get them out. So, so a lot of it is really from behind the scenes, guiding the family and friends to just keep communication open so that then at some point there can be some kind of counseling, some kind of intervention, even mini interventions, which I call sort of conversations where you're planting seeds, um, or larger scale interventions, which can go on for a few days. But of course, the person is free to go anytime they want. You just want them to be interested in hearing more because you're able to convey a message to them about how this is actually a dangerous situation for them and that they just don't realize it yet or they're not willing to see it yet. But the other 
major part of what I do is in helping people who are on their way out and also have already left. So the people who are starting to come to and they're noticing that something's really off and that their initial intuition, which is usually a negative one or a suspicious one that they were kind of manipulated out of having was right. And it's suddenly coming back and they're saying, okay, I need to act on that now, but I don't know how. Or for the people who have left who think that that was going to solve the problem just by leaving, but a lot of the manipulative tactics and fear-based teachings and influence has gotten under their skin. So they're sort of physically out, but not emotionally, mentally, or spiritually out. So they need help with those last steps. In situations like this, the leader doesn't even have to be present because the follower is policing their own thoughts and feelings to the extent that they don't need to be there. Right. So it's a really great point because sometimes people have the sense that the cult leader or the controlling partner is just very busy, always, you know, keeping that person uh, in their grasp and is constantly working that angle. But they actually don't have to. They have to set certain things in motion and then they can sit back and just watch it happen. That people do then start to police themselves and they do start to doubt themselves. And they feel like it's their job to dismiss their doubts and because that's evil or that if they are not devoted 100% to the leader and the teachings, they're abandoning the mission or whatever else, sort of these large-scale thoughts where, yeah, a cult leader can sometimes sit back on their lounge chair and just have everyone drive themselves crazy by keeping themselves up to a certain standard to please the leader or to do the mission that's going to help the world. There are some people also who I've talked to who have been in environments where they were told that if they ever had thoughts about leaving or if they ever had doubts about the leader being perfect, that that, that meant there was something wrong with them. So they spend a lot of their day talking to themselves about how to get rid of those thoughts. So again, the leader can kind of nap during the day while everyone else is up 20 hours doing the work for them. Part of that is also that we as human beings want to make sense of things. And so here, if we've left our home or if we've dropped out of school or left our marriages or whatever else, we want it to feel worth it. So even if things don't make sense and even if all the promises are not yet coming true that you've been promised, you want to stay in the hope of it. So you sort of talk yourself into it. And cult leaders know that you're going to do that. And so again, they don't have as much work to do as you do on yourself. When I talk to people, what I notice is that um, I can see as they're talking to me in my office, whether it is that they were the underage wife of some cult leader, all the way to if it was a political group or even a group where they got entangled on the internet. They haven't even met these people in person. The control can be the same, which is fascinating for people to think about, that you don't actually have to have met these people and gotten to know them and even have seen them face to face for them to get under your skin. That's what's so insidious about coercive control, whether it's an abusive relationship, a cult, multi-level marketing organization. They all operate the same way. I do see it in my office where people are fighting against themselves, that they'll, they'll come to my office and they'll talk about what happened to them. And then I see their eyes sort of 
you know, look in a different direction or their voice trail off and I can, I'll ask them what's going on and they'll say that they're the programming, this, the self-doubt, the self-deprecation, the, if they're having this thought, the devil's going to get them. Or if they're having this thought, then, you know, they're going to lead towards world destruction or whatever else has been put on their shoulders. And so even though they've come to my office or even though they're talking to me on the phone, they're still at war with themselves. And I'll just try to make people very aware of that. Not only the, in, the thoughts that have gotten under their skin, but to teach them why they were given those thoughts. And that really helps to untangle it. And it helps them see that they were made to feel this way so that the person could maintain control over them, that it wasn't for their benefit. It wasn't for ultimately for the world or for their own safety. So that seems to be a way to help start to disengage people when they start to learn about the process and the intention of those thoughts, that what the leader's intention was by making them feel that those things were true or that they were in that kind of danger for thinking otherwise. So the thing that binds these groups that could be spiritual or what seem like mainline religious groups or healers, you know, these sort of psychic reading places, all the way to political groups to extremist groups. We see it also in human trafficking, all over the board. What seems to be this thread is that it's actually a couple threads sort of tangled together. One is the need for a link to something that makes you feel special and a community that makes you feel not alone. A lot of people connect with these people, even controlling partners, who will say, you know, no one will ever love you the way I love you, even if I'm abusing you, but you'll never have this again. This idea that, you know, this, mm, it's sort of like a influence technique called scarcity. This can only happen here. You will only get the answers here. You will only have safety here. You'll only have a relationship with God through me, through us. Uh, you will only experience love like this with me. Clarify something for people who think that they can't be brainwashed. Scarcity works every single day when you go to the grocery store. You have to buy this now because it's only available for 24 hours or buy this special edition. Scarcity activates people's brains. You do. And that is so interesting because I have people who will say to me, listen, I got involved in this kind of very fraudulent thing, multi-level marketing system. I, I believed in the hype. I believed in the high. I was drawn to the high. Um, I was willing to build shelves in my garage and buy all these products and it was going to make me the million dollars that I needed to help put my kids through college, whatever else. And it just ended up destroying my bank account and destroying my life and destroying my marriage, but that they didn't care. They just were saying, well, it's because you're not doing it right and you're not devoting yourself enough. You have to buy more products and they sort of keep you, it's like getting giving you this medicine that's poison and you start to exhibit the after effects of that poison and they say, oh, it's because you're not taking enough of it. So they give you more. And so when you are dealing with just day-to-day -day life, it's true. A lot of people, again, who leave these groups will tell people they got caught up in a multi-level marketing scheme or whatever else. And other people, for whatever reason, feel the need to say, oh, I would never fall for that. I don't know why they feel like they have to give their opinion, but for some reason they do. 
It was sort of like old school and still, I'm sure, in some places where people say, you know, oh, I'm gay or whatever. And the other person feels the need to talk about how they feel about that. Like, did they ask? Right. Like, it doesn't matter. And but there's it's same same with this. I think people posture like "Mm, I would never fall for that. But just think about this example for the people who said they would never fall for something. Another influence technique is reciprocity. If someone says, I'm going to give you the answers, or I'm going to give you love, or I'm going to give you a community, I'm going to give you a way to feel free from your family who I'm going to convince you is controlling you and keeping you back. I'm going to give you the the ticket to safety because I'm going to teach you about all these conspiracy theories so you know what the government is up to and then you'll know you're you're going to survive if something bad happens. You feel like you're being given a gift that you can't get anywhere else. So it's also human nature to want to give back when you feel like you're getting something, especially something special. And so then you give back by devoting your time, your devotion, making sacrifices dropping out of your relationships or school or your job. And also you give back by bringing more people in, becoming a recruiter for the group. But there is this reciprocity. And again, when people say, oh, I never caught up in that, I'll say, okay, have you ever sent out holiday cards? Yes, I've sent out holiday cards. Now it'd probably be an e-card, but whatever, still a holiday card. And then I said, okay, after you're done giving out all your holiday cards, then you suddenly get a card from someone you didn't send one to. What would you do? Oh, well, I would add them to my email list and I'd send them a card or I'd get another Christmas card or whatever it is and send it to them. And I would say, that's reciprocity. You are engaging in that. You suddenly got something from someone and you felt the need to give back. That plays out in our lives all the time. So cults didn't invent these things. They just use them. In your practice, are there any qualities of people that you see regularly that are a profile of somebody who would be more susceptible to joining a cult? Yeah, a lot of people ask me what kind of person would get involved in something like this. And, you know, yeah, there are certain personality types, I think, that are more susceptible or more vulnerable, but there's also a timing issue that I want to make sure to mention. In terms of personality style, it's actually really good qualities that get utilized and that get abused and taken advantage of within cults. You have someone who is open-minded to new ways of belief. You have someone who believes in the party line of the group that associating with this group or helping to fuel it by using your man or woman power or by giving them money, that they're going to make this difference in the world and you're going to be able to do something that feels in line with your conscience because you want to be involved in in a, a mission or an effort that feels bigger than you. To unlock the rest of this episode, visit patreon.com forward slash K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R. It's only $5 to unlock over 20 hours of content.